So we're going to get started on this Christmas Sunday in the book of Genesis. This is where the story of Christmas begins. If you want to put the Christmas story in context, the story begins with God creating the world and declaring it to be good. That's Genesis chapter 1. Then Genesis chapter 2, God creates human beings and declares them to be very good. And then God invites these first human beings into relationship with him. His desire wasn't to create puppets that he could control or pieces of matter that he wasn't interested in. His real desire was to create image bearers. You see, these first human beings and every human being since were and are made to bear God's image. So God creator desired a relationship with us the created, and that is amazing. But wouldn't you know it, the first humans went from a trusting, intimate, close relationship with God to something far different. We don't know how long they walked in fellowship with God, but at some point they entertained temptation and they stepped into disobedience and into open rebellion. And as the biblical narrative unfolds, there's one particular episode in Genesis chapter 3. You may be familiar with it. It's very, very interesting. The man and the woman stepped away or out from trust into disobedience. They doubted God's word. They wondered if he could really be trusted, and they stepped out into disobedience and away from relationship with God. Now, you probably know this story. It's very well known. It's a very famous story. In verse 8 of Genesis 3, we read, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you have some questions. <laughs> yeah, right now you ought to have some questions and more than just one or two. Adam and Eve, really? A talking snake? Really? Forbidden fruit? Really? And I get your questions. I get all that, and I respect that because we all have some questions. But I want to set those questions aside for a moment, and the thing we want to draw your attention to today is this, that one of the very first images we get of what God is like is that God desires some sort of relationship with those creatures that he has made. Yes, with us. With us. That literally, this idea of walking with them in the cool of the day, I don't know how that worked. I don't really know even what that meant. But the image that's so important to grasp here was that God somehow desired some sort of relationship with these very first human beings. That the desire wasn't just that God would be up there somewhere and, and, 
and they would be down here in some other place, but that they would dwell together in the same space. And it's very interesting. The first picture we get of human beings hiding from God, verse 8 of chapter 3 says, they hid from the Lord God, I, I, I found this interesting, among the trees in the garden. And while they are hiding, what's God doing? God is looking for them. Even when they're hiding from him, he comes looking for them, not, not so he can punish them, because that's what you do when you're living in relationship with somebody, especially somebody you love. So we have this picture of creator God who's seeking out humans who are hiding. Now, as the story of this relationship progresses into the next few chapters, which we call the story of humanity, God gathers a group of people, a tribe from the lineage of a man named Abraham. And he gathers this group of people and he tells them, now, you're going to represent me to the world. You are going to be my people and I will be your God. And your job is to show the world what I am like. And note it, God says this kind of amazing thing to them. Where? In the middle of a desert. Where? In the book of Exodus we find it, the next book in the Bible. See, what we're doing here is we're just starting off and going to go book by book this morning. And there are only 66 books, so it shouldn't, shouldn't take us too long. <laughs> in the book of Exodus, God rescues his people out of slavery and they escape from Egyptian bondage. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the ten plagues and the death angel and the Red Sea and the ensuing army and all that stuff. And on the other side of the Red Sea, as they are beginning to make their way through the wilderness to the promised land, God says to them through Moses, the, the mouthpiece, in Exodus 25, verse 8, have the people build a sanctuary so I can what? So I can live among them. I want to dwell among them. Now, this may not sound like a big deal to us. Let's be honest. But, and the reason for that is this. We are living on the other side of Christmas, right? You see, this was long before Christ. This was, we call it, B.C. And we've only ever known life after Christ. But back in the day before the birth of Christ, the gods, small g gods, didn't dwell among people. This is totally unheard of. They had no context for this idea that creator God, who created everything, desires a relationship with his creation, yes, with people. Even after the people rebelled in disobedience in the garden, and now, even in the short time in the wilderness where they spent a lot of time grumbling and complaining, this was after that. This was after Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law, only to find the people had melted down their jewelry and made a golden cow that they're now worshiping. Even in light of all that kind of behavior, God desires to dwell among us. He says in verse 9 of Exodus 25, build this tabernacle. That's an interesting word. Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you haven't fully understood it, as I haven't. Tabernacle is a fancy word that just means a kind of 
traveling sanctuary. And as a verb, it can also be used as a verb, to tabernacle means to take up residence. So God says, build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. So God then directs, gather the people, and he says to the people, listen here, I want to dwell among you. Get that firmly in your mind this morning. Now, once again, God says this in a different way in the book of 1 Kings. So we're making some headway. Only 63 more to go. When King Solomon set out to build a permanent temple in the city of Jerusalem, you see, the nation of Israel now had become a world power by this time. They were a military and economic powerhouse, and yet their God still lived in a tent, so to speak. Well, Solomon's palace itself took 13 years to build, and he was living in extravagant luxury, and the God whom they worshipped, his presence was represented where? In a tent. So in 1 Kings chapters 8, 9, and 10, Solomon built this temple. And in verse 10 of chapter 8, it says, When the priests came out of the holy place, this was in the temple, this brand new temple, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. This was known as the Shekinah glory. This was the very manifestation of the presence of Almighty God. And verse 12 of chapter 8 says, Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can, what? Live forever. Now I hope you're tracking this. I hope you are tracking so far. There, because there's a pattern here, and I hope you see the pattern. The biblical story begins with creator God wanting to have a relationship with his creation. Matter of fact, with the pinnacle of his creation, with humans, with us. So he dwells with them on earth somehow. Then humans make some poor choices. Then humans make some poor choices. Those people way back then, they made some poor choices. Why? Because God gifted us with free will, and that's dangerous. But hear this. But he wanted us, everybody hear this. He wanted us to choose relationship with him. Repeat. He wanted us to choose relationship with him. So out of our free will, human beings make a decision that creates distance in their relationship with God, and then they do what we would have done and what we continue to do, even to this day, they hide, and then they lean into that distance, and that's where they live, that distance between them and God, and their own rebellion, therefore, has come between them. So, 
What does Creator God do in response? He gathers a community, and in the midst of that community, what does He say? I desire to dwell among you in a mobile fashion. See, you are on the move. I want to be with you. I want to travel with you. I want to go where you go as you make your way through the wilderness to the land that I've promised to you. So they built the tabernacle. It was this traveling tent or sanctuary. And as they moved, it moved with them. And it was a place where they could meet with God and experience his presence. Then years later, generations later, as a matter of fact, when they were firmly established in the land, in the new land, they had built cities and they had fortresses and they had strongholds and they were having every kind of success, but they weren't going anywhere anytime soon. They were there to say, so then they built the temple. And they saw the temple as a permanent representation of God's presence, for it was built to last. And as long as the temple was here, God's presence was here. And all this, I hope you're following this pattern, just keep it, we're going to keep it going. All this sets up an announcement, a very important announcement that is given over in the book of John. But before we go there, let's watch this. the Gospel of John, from the tabernacle in the 15th century B.C., which served the Israelites until the dedication of the temple sometime in the 10th century B.C., jump all the way past the division of the kingdom through the various exiles, all the way to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, John writes this about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word 
word is capitalized. The word for word is the word logos in Greek. It's the Greek philosophical concept that said that logos was what made the universe intelligible to human minds. It was rationality that embedded itself in created matter. The logos is what made the universe intelligible to humans. So in the beginning, John says, was this logos, this word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that's been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And you scroll down to verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and did what? Made his dwelling among us. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus you, I think you realize how ridiculous this statement is. It's a crazy, outrageous idea, and there are, there are plenty of them in the Bible, but one of the most out-of-the-box, paradigm-shifting ideas has to be that this word that was God was with God, that this word took on human flesh. That literally the Christmas story isn't that Jesus showed up and said, hey guys, uh, pay attention, I got a new religion for you. Or that Jesus showed up and said, you know, I got a brand new philosophy I'm going to unveil on the world. That when people are like, hey, this Jesus, is, he's a new way to God. Yeah, I guess so. That's what he said. I mean, but like, listen, if we can believe it, it's bigger than all of that. Jesus is God in human form. It's not that God said, here's a new ladder to climb. Here's a new hurdle to climb over. Here are some new rules to follow. It's the idea that God himself showed up, that he took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. There's a sense in which the whole Christmas story is about a God who took upon himself the limitations of our existence in order to dwell among us. There's a picture emerging. The picture emerging is that the story begins with God dwelling with his people. And the story moves on to a God who wants to dwell among his people wherever they go. And then the next picture is this God who wants to dwell among his people in this temple. And then the fourth chapter of the story is like God wants to dwell among his people as one of them. We tend to think that the scriptures are the story of our search for God when it's precisely the opposite. The scriptures are about God's search for human beings. Our universal response to our brokenness is to hide. God's response to our brokenness is to seek. And so God shows up. And that's the Christmas story. And we have to understand that when Jesus came to inaugurate wasn't a, what wasn't a new religious system, right? Because religious systems all have to do with us climbing our way up. No, Jesus came to bring gospel, good news. This is about God coming down. This is about God coming down when he created Adam and Eve. This was about God coming down in a tabernacle in the wilderness. This is about God coming down in a temple in Jerusalem. And this is about God coming down in the person of Jesus. So we believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus was fully God and fully human, like both at the same time. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine there are a few people here this morning, and you're here because it's Christmas, and you came with a family member or a friend because they asked that, that's all they asked from you this Christmas, so you're here, you're pretty skeptical of the whole church thing, and I get it, I totally get it, 
But the claim is, and the scriptures teach, that Jesus was God in human form. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. We had some really good teaching on that a few weeks ago. If you want to go back and check that out on our website. It's always been interesting to me that when Jesus walked the earth, it was the sinful people who loved him and the religious people who were skeptical of him. And it's interesting, a couple thousand later, it seems to kind of reverse. The self-proclaimed religious people claim Jesus and the broken sinful people are the ones that run away from him that think somehow it's not what they want or need. But it wasn't like that originally. When Jesus was teaching about what God is like, he said things like, let me tell you what God is like. God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And guess what the shepherd does? He goes in search of that lost sheep and when he finds it, it's filthy. It's been away from the flock for who knows how long. It's probably bloodied, but he picks it up and he celebrates and he carries it home. And that's what God is like. And some of you may find that hard to accept that God is like that. Because some of us grew up in church and some of us grew up around church people and we heard just the opposite and we experienced just the opposite. That you got to like get cleaned up first, you got to get religious first, you got to work on some self-improvement first before you're worthy to approach God. But with Jesus, what Jesus showed us is that's not how it works with him, that he pursues us. There's a fair amount of bad press about Jesus of Nazareth. There has been for a long time. That's not something new. And we sit around church and we lament the way that Jesus is perceived by those outside the church. But if we're honest, the reputation that's sometimes associated with Jesus is usually actually because of the church. In the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ. We are called to be the hands and feet and heart of Jesus to the world around us. But we've often neglected this calling. We've often misrepresented Jesus to the world by our hypocrisy, by our judgment, by our lack of compassion, by our wanting to win all the time. So if you're one of those who's been disillusioned about Jesus because of your experience in the church and with church people, I would just want to say I'm sorry for that. That's our fault. We own it. We haven't always represented Jesus well because this is not what Jesus is like. Jesus is the shepherd out in the middle of the night, in whatever weather, in all kinds of conditions, crawling through thickets and swamps and everything else to find that one lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he doesn't scold it, he doesn't punish it, he doesn't throw it out of the flock. No, he tends to its wounds, he gives it a drink, he wraps it up in his arms, he throws it on his shoulders, and he carries it home. That's what God is like. If you've ever tried to read your Bible and been overwhelmed, has anybody ever experienced that in any part of the Bible on any attempt at some point in your journey? So the rest of you haven't opened your Bible, apparently, because this is how it works. All right, there we go. We're all in the same boat here. If you have, for whatever reason, whatever has driven you to like, I need to open my Bible. But here, not very long into it, and it's overwhelming, and it's confusing, and it's ancient, and some of the stories are just plain weird. But let me just give a little clarity. What we have in the Bible as a whole is you have a story of a God who keeps wanting to get closer. So it starts with, let's spend some time walking in the garden. Oh, now you're going to be a tribe. Now build me a tabernacle. Let my presence fill this temple. And now with Christmas, with the coming of Jesus, we call it the incarnation. Now God dwells among us as one of us. And a little later in the book of John, Jesus says this crazy thing. He looks at his followers 
And he says, okay, I got some good news and bad news. Bad news, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put to death. It's going to be awful. But don't give up hope because in a few days I'll rise from the dead. Don't get too excited, though. That's awesome. You should celebrate it, like, at least once a year. But, but don't get too excited, because I'm going to be leaving you shortly after that. I'm going to be ascending into heaven. And you'll want to be there for that, because that is going to be quite a show. You'll want to be there for that. It's going to be cool. And then I'm returning to the right hand of my Father. That's the good news. That I'm gonna, but the good news is I'm going to send some help for you. In John 14, he gives this amazing promise. In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate, and he'll never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. He leads into all truth. We, we just call this spirit, the Holy Spirit. This world, the world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he, what? Lives with you now. He lives with you now and later will be in you. So let's get this straight. The story begins with God walking with his people in the garden. Then human rebellion and sin enter the world and there is separation. There is distance in the relationship between God and his people. So what does God do in response? He forms a people, a tribe, and he says, I'm going to dwell among you. Build me a tabernacle. My presence will fill the tabernacle. Then when they're settled, he says, build me a temple and my presence will fill the temple. And all that is really just building up to this day when he says, enough of all of this. I want to really live among you. So the time has come. I will take on human flesh. And Jesus is born, God in the flesh, the word, the logos, become flesh. And then as Jesus gets ready to ascend to heaven, it's like he says, I know this isn't how you expected all this to play out. You'd rather I stayed in the flesh and, you know, somehow delivered and freed Israel from occupation. But here's my promise to you. I'm sending my spirit who will dwell in you. The story of scripture isn't about humanity's quest for God. It's just the reverse. It's the story of God's pursuit of human beings. See, our universal response for brokenness is to hide. And God's universal response to our brokenness is to seek. And it turns out that the scriptures are the story of God seeking, of God finding us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our dysfunction, and all the while getting closer and closer. Oh, and if you think the coming of Jesus is the culmination, let's just hang on. Because the birth of Jesus, the coming of God to earth in, her, in, in human form, that's freaking amazing, right? But it's not the end of the story. I want to show you how the story ends. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, so Dad said we'd cover the whole book, so we did it, skipped a couple in there. But at the end of the Bible, and just a heads up, Revelation is a weird book, okay? So that's one of those books that ought to be overwhelming to you. So I'm just going to warn you right now. If you meet someone who thinks they have Revelation all figured out, run, because that person is either delusional or a con artist or both, okay? I don't understand most of Revelation, but the parts I do understand are pretty awesome. Revelation 21, the writer who happens to be John, who also wrote about the word becoming flesh, this guy had an elevated way of writing and a supernatural insight into how the world works. John writes about how this story, the story of God's pursuit, how the story of redemption ends. He writes this in Revelation 21. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone. I'm not sure why that's important, but it's in there. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. 
We blitz right through some of this stuff. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. What's that look like? Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, these are some of my favorite words in the Bible, look, I am making everything new. So let's get this straight. The story begins with God dwelling among his people in a garden. The story ends with God dwelling among those people in a new city. It begins with God dwelling among people on earth. The story ends with God dwelling with people on a renewed earth. The story of Scripture isn't about us going to heaven. The story is about God coming down to us. For me, this totally revolutionizes revolutionizes the way I see Christmas. The Christmas story isn't just about a little baby, a precious moment's figurine, and how cute and adorable, and here's some animals, and get them all arranged. The story didn't just drop out of thin air. This is something that God had in the works for a long, long time. And every step along the way, God is moving closer and closer and closer to people. If you've ever felt like the church is telling you you had to get some stuff cleaned up, get some stuff figured out, get some questions answered, or better yet, you know, maybe just set your questions aside, they're not important, in order to you know, show up in a place like this, that isn't true. That isn't what God is like. God comes to us, he comes looking to us, he comes running after us. And the Christmas story is really about God's reassurance that all of the pain and the dysfunction and the depression and the abuse and all of the evil and the suffering of this world is temporary. It's not always going to be this way. The story begins with God dwelling among his people and it ends with God wiping every tear from our faces. See, we believe that love absorbed all the hurt, all the pain, all the anger, all the loss, all the brokenness, all the evil. Love in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, taking on all of that. And that there is a time when God will make everything new. This morning, we just want to give you an opportunity to experience what it is to be found, to be wrapped in the arms of your Creator, your loving Heavenly Father. If you've never said yes to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. And for some of us, it's important that we have a moment in time, a moment that marks our decision to follow Jesus And I've thought about this a lot over the years. For those first followers of Jesus, he comes along and he interrupts what they're doing, interrupts their just ordinary day, and he kind of interrupts the whole trajectory of their lives, really. And he says, follow me. And they drop what they're doing and follow him, no questions asked. That's one way. (laughs) But I got to think at some point down the road, one by one, as they got to know Jesus, they came to believe that he was who he claimed to be. Somewhere along the way, they made a conscious decision to keep following Jesus, to keep giving their lives to him. You know, the best analogy I can think of for coming into a relationship with Jesus is marriage. Uh, I got married, some of the musicians are going to come to the stage, but I got married when I was 21. How many of you remember when you were 21? I, it's very clear to me. Alethe and I, it's the right answer, right? Alethe and I had uh, known each other for five years. We dated for 14 months, and then we were engaged for nine more months. Most of us, when we're making the decision about taking our relationship to the next level, to the point of getting married, 
We do that, right, when we think that we know each other well enough to get married and make it last a lifetime. We understand that we don't know everything about our partner, but we feel like we know enough to enter into this kind of commitment. So you get to the ceremony and the officiant looks at you and says, do you take what's-his-face to be, or whatever, do you take her to be your wife or your husband, and what do you say in response? I do. So you can say this. This is an official ceremony. You can say it out loud. I'm not tricking you into anything. (laughs) Those are easy words to say. It's not like they're like multisyllabic derivative of some foreign language, right? They're simple words. I do. Simple words, a simple answer to a straightforward question. But these simple words change everything. And yes, the wedding ceremony marks the end of a chapter. It's the end of your single life and your single way of thinking and your single life priorities, but it's also the beginning of a new chapter, I would argue, a much better chapter. It's the beginning of a life that's brand new. It's often the way it is when we come to Jesus. There's a chapter that comes to an end, the chapter where we're trying to figure life out all on our our own, where we're looking for answers to life's biggest questions and often coming up empty, where we're looking for fulfillment and contentment and purpose and coming up short. It's the beginning of a chapter where we begin to experience real peace, like in the deepest part of our being, peace, where we wake up on our ordinary days with eternal purpose where we live for the sake of others, loving others as we've been loved, where we come to the end of our days confident that we'll spend eternity in God's presence because we've come to know God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus. So today, Christmas Sunday, we want to give you the opportunity to say, I do, to Him. We're going to listen to a song. You can just sit where you are and just listen to the lyrics of this song. Then Amanda's going to come and lead us in a prayer. This time of year When the trees are up And the lights are hung And Christmas time is here I've heard about you Sometimes I struggle to believe But people keep on telling me You're as real as real can be And they sing joy to the world A Savior is born Must they sing hallelujah like they always do? Could it be true what I've heard about you? I've heard about you, all those stories that. Yeah. 
If it's all true Then it changes everything Cause the hope I thought I'd never find Has found its way to me So I sing joy to the world A savior is born no Holy night Every Christmas I sing to give you an opportunity now to respond to the message that we have heard this morning. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Through Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, we have a chance to come into relationship with our creator who loves us unconditionally and with him is where we truly belong. Um, so I want to encourage you right now to spend some time in personal reflection. If you want to, just go ahead and close your eyes. And I want you to think about the word Emmanuel, God with us. What words and pictures and thoughts come to your mind when you think about that phrase, God with me? What does that mean that he is here with us and not only here, that he will be with us when we leave this building, when we get up and go to work tomorrow morning, when we go throughout our holiday celebrations, God with us. To experience life with Jesus is to find hope, freedom from sin, guilt, and shame, and to be perfectly and unconditionally loved. If you're finding yourself empty, broken, hopeless, or feeling as though you're wandering in the darkness, Jesus is calling to you this morning. If you feel like you're filling your life with all sorts of things, but nothing ever seems to be enough, would you consider accepting Jesus and his purpose for your life this morning. Maybe you do know Jesus and have been trying to live for him and earn his love. Could you accept this morning that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to earn God's love, but that you are already unconditionally accepted, loved, and desired by your creator? Would you come out of hiding this morning and be loved and be known? We want to give you a chance this morning to, pay, to place your faith in Christ for salvation through accepting his death on the cross as payment for your sin and as the way to have a right relationship with him, to put you in right standing before your creator. I want to lead you in a prayer. You can pray this with me silently as you are. There's nothing magical about the words, but there, you can change the words or use words something like this. Um, but if you're ready to place your faith in Christ, I encourage you to pray this with me. Lord, I believe that I need a savior. I believe that Jesus came to be my savior. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin so that I could have a right standing with you. I'm not trusting in my efforts. I'm not trusting in my church participation. I'm not trusting in good works. I'm putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. Thank you for coming to earth in the person of Jesus. 
Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming me into your family and for your unconditional love and grace. I accept your gift of eternal life, and I'm beginning today to live my life with you where I was created to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed this prayer this morning, um, we'd encourage you to, there is a connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you want to fill that out and write down your decision or any other um, spiritual decision you might have made, feel free to do that. We'll also have um, pastors in the back and some members of our prayer team um, that would be happy to talk to you about any more. Um, if you have questions or anything that you might want to talk more about what you've heard this morning.